You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girl down. You already know. I say the thing that we didn't know that we could say. Sexual harassment, of course. It's just part of life. You know, I'm a real feminist in that I think both sexes are total assholes. She came ready to fuck. <laughs> she came ready to fuck. <laughs> this goes back to like Lilith in the Bible. You know, I'm a real feminist in that I think both sexes are total assholes. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today we have such an amazing guest. Our guest today has been a mainstay on the stand-up scene for over 15 years. Eliza Schlesinger is an award-winning comedian, actor, writer, producer, and author who earned her massive fan base by doing tons of touring all over the world. She was the first woman to ever win NBC's last comic standing in 2008. She's had five Netflix comedy specials and her own Netflix sketch show. And she's currently finishing her second book, hosting the podcast Ask Eliza Anything, and developing multiple TV projects whilst traveling once more on her new Back in Action tour. On June 23rd, she debuted the hilarious anti-rom-com Good on Paper on Netflix, a film based on her life, which she stars in and also wrote. And I cannot wait to talk to her all about it. Welcome, Eliza, to our show. Yay! Thank you. That was a sterling intro. Thank you. <laughs> you're so welcome. I feel so good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yours, you're someone who... I find very funny. And you are someone whose name has come up at Bust headquarters over and over again. So I'm so pleased to finally have the chance to talk to you. Well, thank you so much. I hope all good things, but I don't need to know if they were bad. And uh, either way, it's what got me here. So thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love to start with your origin story, how you found your way to stand-up comedy. I know that you were raised in Dallas. And then you went to Emerson College, which is where I went as well. Oh. And like so many Emerson students, you had headed out to LA after college to launch your career. What made you decide on a life in comedy and how did you make it happen? The long, sto the long story short for that is I was always funny, right? Class clown. And, you know, the teacher would be like, do you guys, do you want to do uh, an, an oral presentation? Do you want to write a report or do you want to do a skit? I'm like, a skit, a video, anything that gets me an audience from this homeroom. And I did improv in high school and I took it very seriously. And then I went to film school at Emerson, and we did a lot of sketch, and I had always written sketches sort of in a vacuum and always had this sort of uh, autodidactic education in comedy because, you know, I had like a single mom for a little bit, and just you're in Dallas, Texas, just like watching in Living Color and like Martin and Kids in the Hall, like whatever drifts, wafts into your cable baleen. <laughs> and uh, so, it, and then I, I wrote sketches in that troupe, and I wrote a one-man show, What Woman Doesn't, um, at the end of college, and I took some of those jokes, and when I got to L.A., I was like, you know what? I don't know that I need an ensemble to say these jokes. I'm going to do it by myself, and I just knew nothing. I always knew I was going to do stand-up, but without being a student of stand-up, I didn't watch it growing up, really. I know I've seen a little bit, but no real education about it. Got to L.A., 
met someone who was like, we do a show at this bar, <laughs> which is like every show upstairs on La Brea, if you want to come by. And I sort of met a group that did shows. And then I just sort of started making my way. And I would go out and do shows at night, day job during the day. And then, and now I sell out massive theaters. It was really quite the jump <laughs> overnight. No. So, uh, but that was the beginning of it. It was just like, I don't think I need this ensemble. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take the risk on my own. I know that this pandemic and the lockdown was very challenging for everyone for a variety of reasons, but I, I have to imagine that for someone like you who spends so much time touring and developing material in front of live audiences, it must have at the very least been super weird. I saw you and, and your adorable chef husband, Noah. <laughs> you guys produced over 200 episodes of a cooking show mm -hmm. that you broadcast live on Instagram on Facebook but on Instagram and Facebook called yeah. Don't Panic Pantry. And I found it so sweet and comforting. I loved it. I'm so glad. What else did you do as a performing artist to get through such a weird time? Well, first of all, I'm glad you found it comforting because when we started doing it, I was like, look, let's just do this as a way to spread information about flattening the curve. This is at the beginning and who knew it would fall in such deaf ears for so long. Um, and as a way to exactly like comfort people and be like, don't go out to buy stuff, stay home, use what you have. And we're still doing it. We have sponsors. He got a cookbook deal with Knopf. And, uh, but during it, you know, stand up is, you know, and it's difficult to talk about the pandemic uh, in the context of like just a personal thing because so many people lost so much. So obviously addressing that and not saying that this is worse than like dying of it. So if you come for me, you're, you obviously are a misanthrope and you're not getting the point of this. Um, having stand-up taken away, which is a constant, had been a constant for me, not just touring-wise, but every night, you know, you go to the store, you go to do a show, the comedy store, or any club, like you're just out. Kind of like how an athlete just like goes to the gym. Um, and having that taken away, it had been the one constant in my life for 15 years. You know, before I'd met my husband, like through boyfriends, through friendships through everything, um, through ups and downs in this career for acting and writing and all this stuff, stand-up was the thing and it was gone. And so I really just took it, you know, it was sad and it's weird, but I really took it as an opportunity to finally hone in on all the things that I kind of don't have the uh, bandwidth for. So I wrote a book pitch and I wrote a cable pitch that we're taking out uh, imminently. And I started working on these other screenplays and I held my breath for good on paper because we've just been waiting to see where it would get sold for months. And then the answer was Netflix. So really just put my creative efforts toward other channels. Cool. And now let's definitely talk about good on paper. <laughs> um, Callie and I both saw it. We both thought it was so funny. The log line is after years of putting her career first, a stand-up comic meets a guy who seems perfect, smart, nice, successful, and possibly too good to be true. And then in the very opening sequence of the film, it starts with the words, this is a mostly true story based on a lie. So, of course, I am desperate and dying to know what parts of this story are true. <laughs> uh, I would say for those who haven't seen it, I'd say the first two thirds of the movie are true. These events happened. Um, and then the end, think of it, I would like people to think of it along the lines of like a once upon a time in Hollywood, wish fulfillment, rewriting of the past to get the outcome you want. So this movie is about a girl who, and this happened in real life, ends up meeting a guy, befriending him and then falling for him. And it turns out he was a total sociopath. Um, and I 
wanted to, you know, you're following the rom-com formula, but for anyone who's been screwed over, and not even, this isn't about being bitter, but whether it's uh, a breakup you didn't deserve in a bad way, or you were just lied to and it was just such a horrible thing, I wanted there to be a bit of wish fulfillment, like a way to like see this and be like, yes, I always wished I could do that. Um, because in real life, what we do in the film, I definitely, had I done that to this man, I'd probably be in jail. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, the majority of it is true. And it's all based on very real people and very real experiences. And was being able to write that third act the, the way that you could do it in fantasy land without there being any legal repercussions? I have to imagine that that was cathartic in some way. It is, you know, it's interesting. The end of the movie, I don't think she's any better or worse for having met him. Uh, she does go on a bit of a personal journey in regard to another woman that she feels she's in competition with. And I really, in writing this, you know, I wanted to address, we always, in rom-coms, you know, it's always, and I, we had to go back and forth about the log line because they wanted to call her hapless. And I was like, but she's not. Most women are not clumsy, falling into bushes, like along came Polly, you know, bohemian, like, oh, I'm just such a mess. Most women that I know and most women in general are, including myself, driven, have a career, work at it, and date around for better or for worse, but you're not hurting anyone and don't need to be taken down a peg. There was no, at 30-something, with owning your own home and building a career, you don't need a lesson in love. Uh, this movie is very much about a man scorned and a woman who kind of got caught in the wake, but she is not stronger, better, faster, more emotional, vulnerable, having met him. Like, she was fine. Um, it's really like a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing. So the big art for her was sort of contending with the fact that she hates this other girl who seems to get everything and what that's actually about. And at the end of the movie, it's satisfying to have done it, but there's no real true retribution other than one small thing. Like he doesn't die, unfortunately, right, right. unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> but in writing it, you know, I had certain gross moments I wanted, certain funny moments, and it was always about following the heart and the comedy. Those two things you can't negotiate on. And this is the first sort of feature film script that you've ever written. Is that right? I've written, it's the first feature film script that I've gotten made. Um, but I've written... TV shows. I've written many pilots that no one ever saw. Um, and of course stuff for my late night show and my sketch show, but this is my first made feature film. And we have a couple of other things imminent <laughs> waiting. Oh, in the wings. I just love, yeah. I love it when we have guests on who um, are women who have a movie in mind that they want to be the star of, and they don't wait for someone else to offer it to them. They make they write the movie that they want to star in and then they get it made. It's so inspiring. It's one of those things where if you are looking to do it and you hear that advice, you're like, oh, that's easier said than done. I'll just make it. But it really is such a big piece of the puzzle. And a big part of the reason I love stand-up is because you don't have to ask permission. I give actors so much credit because without being cast in something, you really don't get to practice that craft unless you want to pay to go to a class. Stand up, you can work on that every night. Um, obviously, the, you'd like the crowd to like you, but there's less uh, of, of a vote, right? There's less people deciding. And um, for anybody listening that's interested, you know, I'll tell you this story happened to me around 2015. And I started writing it because I was like, you know, you process it because it's really traumatic what actually happened if you actually think about it. Um, 
And I started writing it. It poured out of me, you know, the main beats of it. And it was very cathartic. And you have to get to a place where you've removed the anger. So you're writing and rewriting. And I, that project, I have other screenplays that I've worked on, but this one became like my secret pet. And I would feel, I took comfort in knowing, okay, I just, I just drove across town. I had an audition. I know I didn't get it. That's okay. Cause I have this screenplay at home and I'm not demonstrative when I work. I don't like go to a coffee shop, which is fine if you do, but I'm not like, look what I'm doing. I don't, you know, insert, I, I just, it was something that you felt, I felt that I had control of in a very out of control industry. And so Saturday night, you're done with your sets. If you're not going out, work on it, bring it on the road, layover, work on it after your shows, work on it. And it was something to productively put your energy toward. Uh, cause I just love being productive. And so I felt good about that. I didn't feel like such a loser. I was like, you're actively trying to build this screenplay and I did it quietly. And so that's about two years of work. And it was just something that I, I, I wasn't booking. I continue. I've only booked a few things. I just don't, I audition at a very high level and I don't book a lot of things as much, you know, because I, it's just, it sometimes it doesn't work out. You'll find, you'll hear the weirdest reasons. And, uh, I wanted to write something for a character that I, that, that was similar to me. I like playing myself and I wanted to write something that other actors would have fun in. I didn't want to write something that was so self-serving that nobody gets the funny lines except for her. And I wanted it to be, I wanted my lesbian best friend to be a character. And for us to have that very sort of raw dialogue that she and I do have in real life and to have some action and heart and not make it this like sappy romance story. Cause that's not what I wanted to write. I wrote the thing I wanted to be in. And if you do that, you're that much more ahead of the game because people want unique perspectives. Can I ask you what happens to the little babies that didn't make it? All those that you wrote that didn't get picked up. They're on this desktop. Are we talking about the, the pilots? Yeah. Do you, do you rewrite them or do like whoever you pitch it to own it? ABC owns those forever. That's what I thought. That's so sad. They aborted your, your, your ideas. I don't even know. We could even call an abortion. It was like before we'd even brought the egg and the sperm together, they were like, we're good. Thanks for coming. It's sad because you love your characters. I've only gotten emotional once, but when you're writing a network pilot, you sort of learn, Hey, we don't want any emotion here. We just want these characters that tick these boxes and it is a game and it is a great paycheck. And if you can make it work, great. But there's a lot, people only ever see the thing that you get across. They don't, they don't know that I auditioned for the hangover. People don't know that <laughs> I've been auditioning for like a decade. They don't see all the TV shows and all the things that you write. And by the grace of God, you know, my manager was like, we've got this meeting with this producer and he's in Boston and I was going to be in Boston. And I looked him up and I was like, oh, he's cute. I'll put in my fake hair. And I went downstairs <laughs> and we just really got along and he liked it. And we made this movie and it took a very long time. You know, I, without being spoilery, I will say that generally speaking, the movie is about your character becoming entangled with a gentleman who misrepresents himself mm -hmm. in, in a number of ways. And I've watched enough episodes of Catfish <laughs> to know that both men and women are susceptible to being manipulated by romantic partners who may not actually be who they claim to be. But there was so much in this film that struck me as what I perceive as a particularly feminine tendency that sometimes women are so willing to ignore their intuition mm. when something seems off mm -hmm. because they just want to make it 
work out from like the very beginning, your character, Andrea, she isn't attracted to the guy for right. whatever reason. He's things ugly. That, That's the reason. Cause he was ugly. Things that he no. says don't make sense. She practically has to be dragged into a relationship with him. But once she's in it, she's willing to make every excuse in the world for his increasingly erratic behavior as if she's almost willing herself to not see what's right in front of her face. I wonder if you agree that women seem to do this to themselves more and how can we break the spell if we get dickmatized? I call it getting dickmatized and it, it's happened to me before and it's happened to other people too. You know, there's, I, I appreciate all the things that you're saying cause you're, you know, you're dead on and you've keyed into some things. Um, only with women do we tell women, Oh, you're not attracted to him. We'll give him a chance. We never say that to men. You've never been like, Oh, you think she's a water Buffalo? Well, she's got a good personality. Because men, men are not attracted to the mind the way women are. How many times have you heard a girl like, oh, he just makes me laugh. And the guy's yeah. like a total armadillo. So there's that. And there's your instincts. And they could even be like raw sexual instincts. Like pheromone-wise, I'm not attracted to this person. Looks-wise, I'm not. But personalities can change that. And so, you know, I didn't want to write the movie where – even the audience is like, you fucking idiot. Why are you ignoring all your friends and being that way? So we tried to be very delicate with the way that we drip feed that fed that information. And I never wanted her to really have it out with Margot in terms of like, you're trying to ruin my life because that's a fully insane way to talk to your friend. This was more like gaslighting in that the information, and this is in real life, the things that this person lies about are not things you would ever think to question. Somebody says to you, you know, I'm secretly the Prince of France and I have a yacht. You're like, okay, red flag. But somebody says to you, I went to an Ivy League school. You're like, okay, plenty of my friends went there. That's not, it's not like you, you said you have the key to Fort Knox or something. And so that, or your mother has cancer. Like these are things that tug at your heartstrings. So what was so to me extraordinary about the story is that all the things that he lied about are not things that we train people, men and women aside, to second guess because they seem as normal as saying what you had for breakfast. Um, and also I feel like you don't want to think somebody is so fucked up to lie about their mom having cancer. You wouldn't. And I would do it all over again because I don't want to be the kind of person that doesn't believe people because these are not things to, that you would lie about. And the kicker is, and she says this in the movie, what's so sad about this type of man. This is like a very specific sociopathic sort of beta in our society. All the things that she liked about him in real life are the things he didn't lie about. You cannot lie about being funny, witty, and smart. Mm -hmm. And had this person not felt so inept, they could have just led with that. And it wouldn't have mattered where they went to school or what they did. And so it really speaks to a type, and this is a prevailing thing in our society that people don't talk about, Oh, lying about cancer apparently is a very big thing. I've heard people talk about roommates who said they had cancer. Didn't that happen to you, Emily? Didn't someone you went to school with? There you go. There you go. <laughs> I'm glad that you brought it up. It wasn't cancer, but uh, uh, when I was at Emerson College, one of my closest friends at Emerson lied um, about having AIDS for over a year. Oh my God, that's even and she worse. Spoke, she spoke to the entire student body of Emerson about her experiences. Um and she That's was so on wild. the payroll of AIDS Action Committee. Well, did and- I hear about this? 
That's not my haircut. That's just the way (laughs) it was pretty legendary that it happened, but she was one of my closest friends. And we remained friends afterwards because I, I was sort of, you know, it's complicated why I remained friends with her afterwards, but I guess the short answer was that I had empathy for the fact that she had a psychotic break. See, there you go. And that's the same tonally, like the same, like, oh, he's like, my mom has cancer. And you're like, oh my God, like, I feel so bad. And then even after I found out the bulk of it was a lie, before I knew the cancer part was a lie, you're still like, I remember saying right before I found out about the cancer thing to his friends, because I met with them privately, I was like, I I just, you know, I feel so bad. And they were like, he, he lied. He's a chronic liar. He does all this stuff. He's X amount of hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And still, like you, I said, I just feel so bad. You know, his mom's dying of cancer. And they said, what do you mean? His mom doesn't have cancer. And that, like, I felt like the biggest jackass. And I, that was the end, obviously. But what you're talking about is being a human. You're trying to be kind Mm -hmm. to people. And it's very easy to look (laughs) at a woman and be like, oh, you dumb woman. And it's like, you'll see. (laughs) You'll see. It's very easy to feel (laughs) kindness towards someone. Mm. My favorite scenes in the movie were between you and your best friend in the movie played by Margaret Cho. To me, your friendship, that was the actual central relationship in the movie. And I loved seeing you two end up happily ever after. It was so satisfying. Tell me about how Margaret was cast as your best friend in the movie. So Margaret, so I wrote this and I knew the character, you can call it queer, but I knew she was a lesbian because my best friend's a lesbian. So the way she and I speak is very blunt. We're very like, we're very similar. And that's the only way I know how best friends speak. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't say to each other like, what up rockstar mama, sexy bitch. Like Mm -hmm. we don't talk like that. And, um, (laughs) but there's a lot of love there and there's a lot of history. And so I knew the character was gay and I knew I wanted to give her a bit of a romantic storyline because I'd like to get to a place in life where a gay storyline and a straight storyline, they both, like, they're interchangeable. And um, I think Kimmy Gatewood, our director, may have said Margaret Cho. I think I had her in mind, and then I can't remember because this is, like, two years ago, but it was one of those names where it was like, yes, offer her the part. She just, it would be perfect because she and I are friendly, but she's so, she and I are so opposite. And on set, um, I mean, I'm easy to work with, but she's just like, hey, I'm here. Yes. The answer is yes. Let's do it. And she's got like this funky look to her and that creates its own character just visually, you know, like I think all those clothes may have been hers that she wears. I don't think they gave her (laughs) tiger stripe bike shorts. Um, And there is like a soft toughness. When you actually meet Margaret Cho, she's soft spoken. She's kind. She's always smiling, never gets upset. She's sweet, but she's covered in tattoos and she's a female comic. So there's this like hidden live edge to her. Um, and I just like her complexity as a person. And I think she just brought a softness and a toughness to their relationship. And there was so much love there between them. And yeah, we offered it to her and I was like, Oh God, please be as good as I'm hoping you're going to be. And she was, (laughs) yeah. I'm glad that you brought up the film's director, Kimmy Gatewood. I recognized her name from the Netflix show glow. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, I know that this was her directorial debut, um, how did you end up collaborating with her as a writer-director team? I feel like the two of you together really made a rom-com that actually feels like it was made by and for women, which barely ever happens. Thank you. You know, from the get-go, as I'm the kind of woman, you know, in my stand-up, 
I say the thing that we didn't know that we could say. And this is never, this is about bringing women in without sugarcoating it. And women are not idiots. And so there's fantasy movies like Emily in Paris, right? You want to see a beautiful girl in beautiful clothes and beautiful places, Devil, Devil Wears Prada. Like there's all that visual candy. But then I wanted to show, and, and this is in things that I write and they're often rejected because I'm like, this is how women speak to each other. Some women are crass. Some women are raunchy. We are not. This is, there's very direct, like we speak to each other like humans. It's not like a, it's not babied down. And there's love there and there's toughness. Like I'm a tougher girl and sh- like there's, you can be all of these things and you can be vulnerable without making a caricature out of it. So we just tried to keep it honest. And so I brought that to the script and, you know, we met with, cause I know there's, you know, we love the idea of female directors and I love that too. I don't think you need a female director, especially if there's a comic behind it with a voice that's that strong. I wanted the best person for it. And it's an even better reason that Kimmy got it because she was the best person. She showed up prepared, which I think is a sign of respect. She wasn't like, oh, and here's just what I'm thinking. Like she came ready to fuck, (laughs) ready to play. (laughs) And she was agreeable. You know, we didn't, it's, you know, we didn't tonally bump heads as people and she was fun to talk to. And she understood, you know, she's very girl power and she comes from glow. So there's this uh, female empowerment thing there, which I think I carry with me naturally, even if it rubs people the wrong way sometimes, but we understood each other. I wasn't about to give this over to someone who was going to take it in a direction that I didn't feel serviced the script. And she really honored the script and had, I love collaborating and I always want better ideas than mine. So she had good ideas that I respected and she had enough of them that I trusted her. You got one good idea and a sea of bad ideas. I'm going to be like, we need a new director. And so it was actually <laughs> in a career where you do everything by yourself, it was actually extremely comforting to be able to let go and, and trust someone I mean, I wrote this and lived it, but there were days on set where I'd be like, how do I say this line? What did I mean? <laughs> and she'd be like, I got you. <laughs> you need that sometimes. You're caring so much. I had that on set with Laura Murphy for my sketch show. Like, here's a joke that I wrote. And I'm like, how, how am I delivering this? Sometimes you're br- like, you just need help. <laughs> <laughs> so she was extremely collaborative and serviced the script. And on set, you know, she, uh, she was at the helm of that ship. And she was easy to work with and cool. And that's what you want. You want easy shoot days, nice tone, nice people. (laughs) That's what you want. You know, you were recently profiled in a different movie, in in a 2021 documentary that I really, really loved called Hysterical. And that movie followed the careers of important women in comedy. You were among a a host of really amazing women in that movie, including Sherry Shepard, Fortune Femster, Margaret Cho, Kathy Griffin, Judy Gold, and lots of other people. And while that film was super inspiring, it also did not shy away from the fact that stand-up comedy is still an incredibly sexist and fucked-up industry for women. I'm wondering what you can tell me about overcoming the double standards and the glass ceilings and the general bullshit that were described by all of the women, including you in that film. Cause I get asked these kinds of questions a lot and I'm trying to, it's so tough because here's the God's honest truth. Even in stating your own story and your own point of view, people have a visceral response. Women 
we're very protective over our experiences and our feelings. And so when another woman says something that seemingly invalidates your feelings, which is impossible because it's an opinion, people get very upset. So it's actually a very difficult ground to tread on. Um, because when you feel written off or not seen is when people get angry, right? So I could sit here and be like, just work hard. And then some girl who thinks she's working hard is like, what a bitch, I am working hard. How could you say that about me? So all I can say is that I had a very different career than the majority of my colleagues, male and female, because I became a headliner so young. So we're talking like 25, 26. I bypassed a lot of the scrutiny and sexual harassment and ladder climbing that is required of men and women, but women, you know, I never had to open for someone that I thought was hitting on me. I never had to do any of that because I was given that opportunity so young. So even though I've dealt with annoying guys and gross comments, I haven't had to take it on the chin in the way that a lot of them have so that I want to validate those experiences and, I've also always been in a position to be like, get that guy out of here, screw, you know, and I'm always nice to people, but if somebody's a creep, you know, I haven't had to, the fear is not there as much for me because of the position I've been in. But what I can say is this, and I just came from another podcast where I said it, you know, sexual harassment, of course, it's just part of life. It doesn't mean it's right or good, but these things are things you should be prepared for because it's going to happen. And if somebody assaults you, that's another thing. And that's horrific. And of course, it's a shame that we didn't listen to women for so long. We people, because I always would. Um, but in terms of power, there are no rules in stand-up comedy. And, you know, there was a lot of stuff that came out around certain comics and girls would be like, you know, and he said, if I had sex with him or if I blew him, I could have stage time. It doesn't work that way. You can literally show me not one woman who's successful in stand-up who slept with someone to get there because you can't fuck funny into someone. It doesn't happen. You can say, oh, she dated someone or something, but if you don't have the talent, you don't stay there. So this idea that, oh, I need to sleep with someone, or he said that, literally walk down the street to the other bar and do that show. Men and women all like to establish their own little fiefdoms, right? And have control over that. But the beauty about stand-up is you can create your own opportunity. It might be hard, People may not like you, but that is, maybe you need to write better jokes. Maybe you need to find your tribe. There are so many other ways to get a yes. And this career is promised to no one. And so just because you, can you guys still hear me? Just because you, mm -hmm. uh, yes, yes. You think you're funny and you write your jokes. First of all, they may not be funny. And this is guys or girls. And you see men that get better about it. Uh, you may not be polished. You may not have enough time. And even if you do have it, you need to work on it more. And even if you work on it more, you need people in your corner. There's this great speech that Gene Smart gives in Hacks, in like the first or second episode. And it's basically like, even with luck, it's not enough. And it, it never gets easier. And it's true. So, you know, I see these girls who are like, I'm trying. And it's like, you may be, but you got to try harder. Because every single piece of artwork, every tour date, every edit, like you got to oversee that because no one's going to do the work for you. Um, and if somebody gives you a hard time, find somebody that you can trust, find another show. I ran two of my own shows when no one would give me stage time. So it's not about invalidating people. It, it is just about, you don't need to take that shit from someone. Go find an adult, tell them, tell me, <laughs> tell another woman and find a group that you can find support with and start your own shit. 
Interestingly enough, you were actually sued for gender discrimination in 2017 because of a show you did called Girls Night In at Largo in LA, in which you decided to do a set for an all-women audience as a fundraiser for Planned Parenthood. A gentleman was turned away. How dare you? Allegedly. I know. Sorry, I have to say allegedly. allegedly I'm sorry. Away. A gentleman was allegedly turned away. And we wouldn't use the word gentleman. <laughs> a person was Dude. allegedly a turned away of attitude yeah. <laughs> and that dude sued for gender discrimination and all of this happened interestingly enough just a few months after a whole bunch of dudes freaked out because Alamo Draft House wanted to have a oh, women only yeah. screening of Wonder Woman I remember it was like a whole thing it seems obvious to me but can you tell me first why did you want to do a show just for women in the first place I have to say that we encouraged an all-female audience, and I believe, you know, this is a 70-seat venue. This wasn't a get-rich show, and I found when you have a group of women, even if the men there are your husbands or your best friends, we speak differently about our feelings. And this isn't, I'm, I'm very pro-man. I love men. This, you know, I'm a real feminist in that I think both sexes are total assholes. Um, you are more willing to open up about your body or a sexual experience or an injustice when you are around other women. Think about when you're like in a bathroom at a nightclub, you will tell a girl, you'll be like, my tampon strings hanging out. Oh, I feel so fat. Oh, I just took it. You can say these things and you wouldn't say that maybe it's just around a guy and some women are very private and personal. So I just wanted to foster an environment. Um, and it was part interactive, you know, I'd have people fill stuff out and we talk about it. And it was just a place to feel safe if you wanted to say something and we'd all relay. I had girls like tell personal stories as a way to just say like, hey, we're all in this. You're valid. It was just like a nice thing to do. And I believe in creating spaces. I don't believe, you know, it's tough to say not everyone should have access to everything because that sounds very like white supremacy. supremacy. But I, what I mean is groups of people should be allowed to bond uh, for 20 minutes and feel safe doing that. You know, if you have a black sorority and you want to have your black sorority sisters, like you should be allowed to just have that. And people don't have the right to just walk into that. Looking back, had we rented out the venue, it would have been a different story. But who knew that attempting to help underprivileged women get abortions and healthcare and uh, create a safe space for women for 60 minutes would be, would end in a lawsuit that literally ended a couple weeks ago. That's how oh, long okay. I probably have fought that battle. So when women, you know, if I ever hear anything about myself, you know, I'm not a girl's girl. I'm not, I'm like, I fought that battle very expensively and very privately. And all I was trying to do was help women. And there were no, I can't comment on the case, but I had no support. I didn't make it public. And it kind of just proves every woman is fighting a battle, mental, physical, sexual, emotional, financial, privately on their own. And that's why I judge women a little less harshly. I'm always trying to gauge that because you just never fucking know. So something that I appreciate and relate to in your comedy very much is that you are open and clear about the fact that you are a feminist. However, 
At the same time, you acknowledge that in comedy, that isn't always an easy road, especially when it comes to trying to entertain other feminists. I remember I was watching your most recent Netflix special, Unveiled, and you said that you were terrified of being called a bad feminist by other bad feminists because of this culture we seem to have developed of shaming everyone. You said, I am a real feminist. I judge you on the asshole that you are. And (laughs) I, I laughed because at Bust, we get letters all the time that begin just like this. Really, Bust? Really? And and so Callie, Callie and I are always like saying to each other, really bust, really? (laughs) And then go on to lecture us about why we're bad feminists, even though we've been like living on minimum wage and like scraping by being feminists for literally 20 years. As you should. Right. What can we do collectively as a feminist community to loosen up this stranglehold a little and allow ourselves to have nice things like comedy and magazines without just trying to like cancel every nice thing that we can possibly give each other in our lives. I am not totally positive what you're talking. This is obviously something I don't know what those letters contain. And I don't know what you said, you know, were you like, here are the top five ugliest women we know. We're just being honest. Like, I don't know. Absolutely Um, not. (laughs) You know, I did that joke because and because I've been obsessed with this idea of cancel culture before it was even a conversation. Just this policing of ethics, gerrymandered ethics by whomever has the bully pulpit at the moment, you know, and um, I never used the word feminist until a couple of years ago. It turns out I was being a feminist without really thinking about it. I just, you know am that way. Um, but I, I started labeling it because it seemed like the best way to encapsulate it. But I think it's, you find this a lot, women who seek to tear other women down. And I'm not talking like a comment. We're talking like making it like, this is what women should do and tearing other women down in the name of building women up for feminism. And it actually becomes the reason that a lot of times we can't get ahead because society loves that. They're like, let's pit them against each other. I hope they take that bait. And that goes into a whole genetic thing of the competition to fertilize an egg and who can look youngest. You know, there's so many things at play. And I just think the more that we take a second, this is men and women. And by the way, I talk so much shit, so I'm not perfect. But it is that thing where like- Nobody's left- perfect. That's the point, right? Right. The fact that I even had to say that is so fucking gross. Like, Because someone would come away from this podcast, by the way, and be like, she was acting like she was perfect. We always always think women have this evil malintent. And this goes back to like Lilith in the Bible. Like we have had this (laughs) mark on us since day one. When you're pregnant, someone will say, you look beautiful. You must be having a boy because girls drain your beauty. Like we have, you've never heard this. We have the worst (laughs) PR. And I, it actually is a cell. It's a practice. When I hear a rumor about another woman. I always oh my God, take hold on. I, I'm just processing that. Oh. So it's like, you looking busted and pregnant. It's a girl or it's a boy <laughs> that's not a girl. girl. You will hear women will say, girls drain your beauty. That is crazy. Which is, I'm just like, so this unborn fetus is competing with me for a man? Yeah. Already? That's what we're saying. It really oh is because God. we've been so programmed to be pit against each other. And sometimes, look. That other girl is a bitch and she is your competition and there is only one spot and I fucking hate her. But 
And she does look busted pregnant. <laughs> so me. Are you, are you saying busted is a good thing or a bad thing? I can't. No, because isn't that way it's j- draining your, like, essence. Right. Oh, right, right, right. So you're looking like a shrivel up. I'm sorry. I confused busted with bussin', which I heard a middle-aged white guy say about a bell pepper <laughs> on TikTok. And I was like, we're done. Um, he's like, it's bussin'. And I was like, I don't think that word's for you. Um, <laughs> it really does. T- it is a practice uh, to objectively look at stories. And two, stand up for another woman because that's always like the unattractive territory. I had a friend who uh, opened at a club and um, the guy that was there, he calls me later. He's like, he's like, Jill, uh, not Jill. I'm trying to think of like a fake name, but that's also a comic. So I'm trying to think of Colleen. He's like, yeah, Colleen was really rude to my showroom manager. And I'm like, really? Because I've been best friends with Colleen for my whole career. And that's like the one thing she isn't is rude. And I, and I pushed him on it. Rather than just say like, oh, that sucks. I was like, where are you getting this? Turns out that's not what happened. The manager was rude and she like didn't respond. So he took that as an attitude. And I told my friend, I'm like, you need to check the way that you, and he was like, you're absolutely right. I didn't even think about it. It's almost like your history and your character get thrown out the window once someone says one bad thing about you. And it is a practice and it's very personal that I, I try to think like, what's her side you know, some people are evil, whatever. Like, what's her side? What's the other version of that? Because you're more often than not in her shoes. So it's so easy. I wrote about this in Girl Logic to like label her as crazy. It's like, or counterpoint, nobody's giving this girl the benefit <laughs> of the doubt or listening to her. So it's a, uh, we've all have a certain degree of brainwashing. I just try to, I really just try to take people for what they're at face value, even if they end up being sociopaths. This is my last question, and it's the last question that I ask all of our guests on the podcast. And that question is, what you watching? It is a multifaceted pop cultural question. I'm talking about books, movies, television, music, music videos, podcasts. If you are consuming it pop culturally, we would like to know about it because it is probably very, very cool. Eliza Schlesinger, what you watching? What you watching? Um, for some reason I've been on this like Bruno Mars kick and I've been rewatching that, uh, Cardi B Bruno Mars, please me video. Oh, I love that video. It's so cool. He's so cool. Um, so that's weird at 38, (laughs) like three years after that release to like be watching that. Um, I just finished hacks. I just, Hey, see, she barks at everything. What's your dog's name? I'll tell you when she sits under my feet because she's afraid of everything. Oh, baby. She's just baby. She's her name's Tian Fu. She's Chinese. Tian Fu, look at your little face. She has a little Eliza face. is holding up a, a cute tiny little white dog with such a cute little face. She came from China? Yeah, she's a rescue and she was abused and so she's like a little cagey but she's sweet baby. She looks like a harp seal for everyone that's listening. Little white harp seal. She does. Yeah. And um and so I uh, we finished Mayor of Easton, which is so good. we're on a real Gene Smart kick in this house. I <laughs> power watch one to three episodes of Frasier almost every night. It's like my panacea. Um, I listen to my own podcast for like quality. I always try to like be a better, just better. And so I listen to that for quality assurance. But I also listen to Lore, Aaron Mankey. So it's not pop culture as much as it is historical. Um, That's the spooky one, right? Lore is like scary. A lot of great facts, though, mostly about, like, ancient Europe and then, like, Civil War era ghosts. Um, And then I'm I'm trying to think of any movies that we've watched. 
those are the two shows that we just I finished Hacked last night. Uh, Mayor Reeson was before that. Uh, I'm going to be on this season of Bosch, which I love. I love the show Bosch. Uh, it's like a dad show. And uh, I guess those are the things. I would say I'm reading a book, but I took a break from reading to start. I have a bone to pick with literature. Okay. <laughs> I write about this in my book, but like every thriller for women is like, you know, when, when a hot girl goes missing, when her mother's hot friend goes missing, when this hot girl gets <laughs> murdered, when two hot women were murdered at the same time, and or it's like a World War II fiction. And like, it's just, I, I want something a little lighter that isn't about like sexual abuse or the Holocaust. Um, yeah, you, you totally reminded me of that sketch that I loved so much from the Eliza Schlesinger sketch show which is hard is to say on netflix <laughs> yeah. where you had that amazing it was like a dateline episode where like a, a beautiful woman <laughs> yeah. and a man got on a boat and they both came back and like they were investigating <laughs> because when a beautiful woman and a man go on a boat obviously the woman has to get murdered but Always. in this case she didn't get murdered and so the the mystery was just like how did a woman go on a boat with a man and come back alive like they came back everything was fine it's weird uh i appreciate that <laughs> it it's so basically funny. that was an old stand-up joke of mine which was like doesn't matter how much he loves you do not go on a boat you will you will wake up dead um so those are the things i guess before that i i think i'd finish reading eric Janetti's do you mind if i cancel which is uh, at times beautiful and vulnerable. And then the rest of the time is just fucking hilarious. I watched, uh, it's a sin on HBO. Highly recommend, highly recommend. And, uh, industry on HBO, beautifully shot, amazing soundtrack, super gritty. It's great. Eliza, thank you so much for being on the show. You're such a massive talent and I'm so happy to have someone like you making media in the world that I can actually relate to because it feels like such a gift when we get it. So thank you so much. You guys, thank you so much. Thanks for writing a rom-com. I don't hate I, this rom-com. I appreciate I'm it. Uh, this was one of the more thoughtful interviews <laughs> I had and you said my last name right. So please have me back anytime. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. We're going to take the briefest of breaks. And when I come back, I'm going to ask Callie. And then Callie, in turn, is going to ask me, what you watching? What you watching? What you watching? Hey, podcast fans. Did you know that the best place to listen to your favorite shows ad-free is Stitcher Premium? They've got Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Wolverine, The Lost Trail, Bitch Sesh, The Fantasy Footballers, Science Rules with Bill Nye, and more, all without commercial interruptions. And we can hook you up with a sweet deal. To get one month free, go to stitcher.com slash premium and use promo code POPTARTS. That's stitcher.com slash premium, promo code POPTARTS. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. 
essentially I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have dockets. We all have a docket. Sex? Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. (laughs) Scams? I'm Caitlin Bradley Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. It's amazing. So smart. I mean, so like smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. Hey, Pop-Tart listeners. Have you been trying to record your own podcast, but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan. LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. That's LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. If you want to have that luscious sound. And we're back. Hello, hello. Callie, we just talked to Eliza Schlesinger. Love it, love it, love it, love her. <laughs> love her. Oh. And now is the part in the program where I ask you because I really want to know and I have to know and I need to know and I must know. Callie Watts, what you watching? Well, the first thing is this YouTube song that we actually came across in TikTok. I'm, c- I'm coming across all this shit in TikTok lately. I finally have my TikTok curated. Um, and it is a song. It's the YouTube name of it is this is a song for anyone who celebrates 420. This is something Lo- Luscious Logan will enjoy. And <laughs> it's on the YouTube channel Nikolaya. I think I'm saying that right. N-I-K-K-I-A-L-I-A-H. And it's a duet. Um, this girl and this guy. And they have the most beautiful voices. And the song is like, where is my weed? I can't sing anywhere near near as good as this girl. I need some peace. Where is my weed? It's calling me. It's like very <laughs> beautiful. It's gorgeously sung. And it's like an anthem to me now. Also via TikTok, I got into this crazy little hole of Nick Kroll and John Mulaney hosting the Independent Spirit Awards. Oh, from 2016 and 2018. Oh. So from a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. And it is literally one of the funniest award shows, monologues, both of them I've ever heard in my life. They are 
fucking hilarious and should host absolutely everything. Um, they were talking in the 2018 one. They're like, they're like the Tina Fey and Amy Poehler of men. Yes. But I hate to say it even funnier. <gasps> they had me dying. I, I mean, I made Camilla watch it when he got home. I was like, this is, I know this is an old awards show that we never would watch, but you have to watch this. Um, so in the 2018 one, they absolutely drag everyone with the Me Too movement. They start talking shit on Weinstein, of course. And then they start talking about Brett Radner because they both tell like personal stories of Weinstein. And then um, and Brett Radner apparently is famous for scratching his balls. Gross. And they were on some, um, I think it was, uh, I can't remember which one was on. Nick Kroll was on a show with him or a movie set. And Brett Radner is scratching his balls deep, deep in it. And then he goes to the craft service table and touched six donuts and then took no! one. No! <laughs> right? And Nick Kroll is like, so if he teaches, treats donuts like this, and I was like. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> and then um, they're like, so what do we do? You know, can we still watch these people's movies that they made? Can I still watch those 30 last terrible Woody Allen movies? <laughs> Or can I just continue to not watch them? Or do I have to revisit them based on allegations that were made public 30 years ago? <laughs> He's just like, fuck Woody Allen. And then he talks about Louis C.K.'s horrible, horrible apology. And he was like, they, they were talking about how he said that women admired him three times, that he says this three times over and over. And he was like, that's like shitting in your pants. And then to fix, fix the problem, you just put on a pair of cufflinks. <laughs> thing is just absolutely genius both of them i i was literally dying it was so satisfying and then obviously i love megan de stallion and her thought shit video which is just so feministy and i absolutely people are upset it. about it have you noticed that people are upset about it what are they upset about no because she's she's calling conservative people she's taking them to task well in they a way should, that's ruffling feathers they were yeah. talking shit on her and calling her a, you know like a bad influence and a hoe and shit so in the video like there's a senator um and he's watching her last music video and then he's like calls her a whore or something he tells her like walk wash her filthy mouth or something and then he starts jerking off to it so she sees the comment and calls him up and then this is what she says on the phone. She says, the women you are accidentally trying to step on are everybody that you depend on. They treat your diseases. They cook your meals. They haul your trash. They drive your ambulances. They guard you while you sleep. They control every part of your life. Do not fuck with them. And then the hotties, first of all, she hits him with a goddamn car, a garbage truck. And then the hotties come and they're like, everywhere he goes, they're twerking all over him. It's just ass and hilarity and then at the end they perform a surgery on him that is so fucking funny <laughs> I, I, I it, it's genius and I love the song and I love everything about it well alright and the last thing I've been watching is another thing that I found via the TikToks and this is the show called Everything is Going to Be Okay I had to troll the comment section to find out where this clip from and so the clip was these three girls are sitting in they're like in a swimming pool and one girl goes I looked at my butthole today. Have you guys ever seen yours? We're like teens, you know, preteens. And then one girl's like, how is it that I have never seen a butthole, but I know what it looks like? <laughs> this other girl goes, she was like, do you think they start out brown or they just get brown? <laughs> Amazing. What have you been watching? 
Well, I'm so glad you asked. You know, I was feeling kind of down. I had a real estate related disappointment in my life. And so I decided to drown my sorrows in the final season of Downton Abbey. I had fallen behind and I watch things like streaming and PBS because they're smart. I put the final season of Downton Abbey behind a paywall. And I was like, hell no. But then in my moment of need, um, they had all of Downton Abbey on Netflix Nice. And so I was finally able to watch the final season, season six. And that show is so soothing. There's a lot of like soft music and beautiful Edwardian era costumes and a lot of a lot of drama that's high stakes to them, but that is like low stakes to like all of us in our like <laughs> modern lives. Man, I love Downton Abbey and a new, I was excited to see that a new Downton Abbey movie is going to come out this winter and I will be ready for it. I'm going to, now that I've seen season six, I'm going to see the, um, the film that came out a couple years ago and I'll be ready for the new film this year winter also i have been watching hacks on hbo max oh yes i've seen that too and it is so good it is a show that stars Jean smart who i adore from designing women she's doing a lot of things now she's having a great year Jean smart is living her best life and hannah einbinder and Jean Smart is obviously playing someone who's loosely based on Joan Rivers or there's there are overlaps in the Venn diagram of her her fictional character Deborah Vance and the uh, actual career of Joan Rivers in terms of her being such a um you know like such a groundbreaking woman in late night television and in stand up comedy and on QVC and all that stuff there's there's a lot of echoes of Joan Rivers who I really miss in this world. And I, I love this show hacks on HBO max about this older, very established stand-up comedian who hires this younger 25 year old comedian to help her with her writing. And um, I just think the show is really well done. And I'm very happy to see uh, the pioneering women of comedy getting their due in this fictionalized way. And I also saw In the Heights on HBO Max. Um, That is the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical that got turned into a movie. And um, then its release was put on hold because of the pandemic. And so then it was delayed. And then it finally just came out both in theaters and on HBO Max. It's basically about the predominantly Dominican Washington Heights neighborhood in Manhattan and everybody's pursuing dreams of a better life. And, you know, it's about, you know, do you get out of Washington Heights? Do you stay in Washington Heights and make you make it a better place? There's, um, you know, a lot of singing and dancing, but I also, I noticed that even though so many people are watching it, I feel like everybody's watching it and talking about it. Maybe because it's in it's on HBO Max, it was a huge disappointment at the box office. This movie has grossed twenty one million dollars worldwide, and it cost fifty five million dollars to make. Oh wow! Um, and I think it's just because people are not going back to the theaters. No, not really. Also, like I feel like what people are going back to the theaters for is like action movie. 
I just hope that the disappointing box office of this doesn't prevent other giant, big-budget movies about marginalized communities from getting made, because I was happy to see it. And the last thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page, which is in the world, and it's great. And I just want our listeners to know that we could really use everyone's help to keep Bust alive. And the Pop-Tarts Patreon page is our way of doing that. We've assembled all kinds of goodies for Pop-Tarts listeners um, in an attempt to entice you into sponsoring us via patreon.com slash Pop-Tarts podcast. Callie and I, with the help from Team Bust, have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what everybody has been watching for all 110 episodes of Pop-Tarts. We've got totally ad-free episodes available. There's exclusive content on there that you won't find anywhere else. There's Zoom chats with Callie and I. There's presents. There's shout-outs on the show. There's all kinds of uh, incentives and enticements on there for you to peruse at patreon.com slash Podcast, and I hope you'll check it out. Finally, I would like to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Muy caliente, Logan. And, of course, our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you cannot find Callie on socials, so don't try, right? Leave me alone. (laughs) But you can email both of us. I'm at emilyrems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, if you wouldn't mind, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. We super duper appreciate it. It really helps us get the word out. Until next time. What can we do collectively? What can we do collectively? As a feminist community, to loosen up this stranglehold a little and allow us to loosen up this stranglehold a little and allow ourselves to have nice things like comedy and magazines without just trying to cancel every nice thing that we can possibly give every nice thing that we can possibly give each other in our lives without just trying to cancel every nice thing that we can possibly give each other in our lives.